I find my best light here. <laughs> uh, okay, why the framework hypothesis does not work and what does. <clears throat> so what is the framework hypothesis? It's the idea that the author of Genesis 1 arranged the days of creation to form a literary pattern, a framework composed of two tablets of three days each, with the first day light corresponding to the fourth day's uh, light bearers and the second day's uh, water and sky corresponding to the fifth day's birds and fish and then the third day's land and herb uh, corresponding to the sixth day's uh, land animals and humans who eat the plants. And since on this view the sequence of the days is literary and not historical or chronological, all the conflicts with Genesis, which are chronological conflicts, are dissolved. For example, there's thus no conflict with science when the text says or mentions the creation of daylight and plants before the creation of the sun. Uh, to what extent does scripture support this hypothesis? Uh, scripture clearly supports the idea that the creation days of Genesis 1 are arranged in two tablets of three days each. Genesis 2.1 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. The verse tells us that the chapter has two major parts, the creation of heaven and earth and all their hosts. According to the context, the hosts are composed of the heavenly bodies, the fish and birds, and the land animals and the humans. Uh, Genesis 2.1 thus sustains the idea that Genesis is composed of two tablets of three days each. The division into two tablets uh, seems to be supported also by the statement in Genesis 1.2 that the earth was without form and void. The first three days then are days of forming, and the second three are days of filling. So why doesn't it work? Well, the first problem with the framework hypothesis is that the days of the first tablet must chronologically precede the days of the second tablet. The days of forming must necessarily precede the days of filling. The two tablets are thus not simply literary, but also chronological. More importantly, the six-day framework in Genesis 1 is set within a broader framework of seven days. And this raises two questions. Why are there seven days, and why are days mentioned at all? The story of creation could be fully told without any reference whatsoever to days. So there must have been an important reason for setting forth the creation of the universe in terms of seven days. The reason for this overarching seven-day framework is readily apparent. As we read in, the, in Exodus 20 in the Ten Commandments, six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God, in it thou shalt not do any work. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea 
and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. The creation account then is set forth in six days followed by a seventh in order to teach the lesson that we should work six days and rest the seventh because that is what God did in the creation week. The days are thus contextually defined as immediately, chronologically successive days. That is the day kind of days we work. Six chronologically successive days and rest the seventh. The alleged parallelism of the individual days. Since there really is a literary parallelism between the two tablets of three days, many have pursued the further parallelism between the individual days of the two tablets. With day, as we said, day one with four, two with five, and three with six. Evangelicals who perceive this further parallelism conclude that the arrangement of the days is literary and that the author did not intend the days to be understood as chronological. This interpretation, as we have just seen, is contrary to the context. To repeat, since the days are only mentioned in order to teach humans to work six immediately successive days and rest on the seventh, the context defines the days as chronologically successive. And this is the historic understanding of the church. In addition to the fact that the days of creation are defined by their context as chronologically successive, I am arguing additionally that the author was so constrained by the initial chaotic condition of the earth, Genesis 1, verse 2, and by his intended theological lessons, that he had no real choice about the order of the works on the six days of creation. So whatever parallelism one might find between the, uh, th the days in the two tablets is not the result of the author's choice, but the result, I think, of chance and of the reader's unconscious selective perception. Let's look at the first day. The primeval darkness of Genesis 1-2 cries out for the creation of light. And if God's work is to be an example for the Israelites, it would have to occur, his work would have to occur during the day because Israelites did not work at night. Consequently, creating daylight before solving the problem of the flooded earth seems most, most appropriate. And there's another reason, even more important, for having daylight created on the first day. In order for God to set an example of working six consecutive days, a means of dividing one day from the next would have to be established on the first day of creation. This means the creation of daylight alternating with the darkness of night had to be the first work of creation. It had to be the first work in order to set up the basis 
for counting six successive days of work. The second day, having solved the problem of the primeval darkness, the remaining problem of the original chaos was the unrestrained floodwaters that were still covering the earth. They were the reason the earth was desolate and void. They demanded a solution. Since daylight now existed, the creation of the sun was not a pressing problem. It could wait. But solving the problem of the primeval floodwaters could not wait. The earth had to be properly prepared, properly formed, before it could be filled. The making of the firmament on the second day was not primarily a matter of making the sky, but of beginning to bring the primeval floodwaters under control. The firmament, which was understood to be a solid hemispherical dome over a flat circular earth, would split the primeval waters into two parts, with half of those waters above the firmament. The firmament would then act as a dam to keep the waters above from falling back up down to earth. Uh, at the same time, the lower circumference of the firmament, being a dome, would impose a circular outer boundary on the waters below the firmament. That idea is reflected in Proverbs 8.27. So at the end of the second day, the organization and restraint of the primeval floodwaters was well begun, but not yet finished. The upper half of the primeval waters was completely organized, but the lower half was bounded only at the outer edge of the firmament that had come down upon them. The earth was still submerged in unfathomable waters and consequently just as desolate and lifeless as it was at the beginning. The work of day three was to finish organizing and restraining the lower waters. This work on day, th on day three naturally follows the work begun on day two because it completes the work begun on day two. The fact that day two is the only day which ends with no statement about God calling it good confirms that the work of the second day was not complete. The work of the third day, therefore, is part two of the work begun on the second day. It thus had to chronologically follow the work of the second day. Some more notes on the third day. On the third day, the waters below the firmament, Genesis 1-7, which had been covering the earth, uh, earth disk, ran off into the waters around and below the earth disk. The waters below the firmament were now fully organized. They were bounded at their outer edge by the firmament, which met them at the horizon, Again, Proverbs 8.27, and were bounded at their inner edge by God's command that they could no longer cover the earth, Psalm 104.9. They could come up to the edge of the dry land, but not go over it, Job 38.11. And now that the waters below the firmament were completely bounded and under control, God could name them, 
and he named them seas. The work of the third day was thus primarily about completing the work of organizing and controlling the primeval waters. As a result of the work of the third day, the earth was no longer under the waters, but floating on the waters, or as Psalm 24.2 puts it, founded upon the seas. Because the primeval waters had run off the earth and, gathered, and, and been gathered into the sea around and below the earth, the dry land appeared and God named it earth. The appearance of plant life testified that the waters which had been covering the earth and preventing life were now under control. Now we come to the famous fourth day. <laughs> the making of the sun, moon, and stars on day four shows up in literary interpretive charts as day one light and day four light bearers. There are, admittedly, parallels between the two days. There is no contextual reason, however, for thinking an original light created on day one could not alternate with the darkness before being augmented with the creation of the sun on day four. Modern science may rightly dispute such a sequence of events, but Genesis 1 is not based on modern science. It's based on ancient science, the science of the writer's day. As we have just seen, the biblical text defines the days as chronologically successive, indeed immediately chronologically successive. Regular, regular might say just regular days in a regular week. And as we look closer at the context, we see that the author had no opportunity to be merely literary. In order to begin counting days of labor, the author had to make daylight on the first day. Once daylight was created, the most pressing problem was to organize and restrain the floodwaters. Solving that problem required days two and three. The fourth day is thus the first day that was available for making the heavenly bodies. They could not have been made any earlier, and as we shall see, they could not have been made any later. In the author's thinking, the hosts of heaven and earth broke down into three groups, the heavenly bodies, fish and birds, land animals and humans. It is agreed by all that humans are the climax of the creation week. Their creation, therefore, must be placed at the end of the story, on the sixth day. That means the only days remaining for the creation of the heavenly bodies are the fourth day and the fifth day. If the author placed the creation of the heavenly bodies on the fourth day, they would be associated with the rest of the non-living physical universe just described on days two and three. But if fish and birds were placed on the fourth day, the heavenly bodies would be on the fifth day, immediately preceded and followed by living beings. This would suggest that the heavenly bodies were also living beings, so gods. That is the last thing the author would want to communicate. The author thus had no real choice except to place the creation of the heavenly bodies on the fourth day. 
the author had no liberty to arrange the days in a merely literary pattern. Since the author had no opportunity to be merely literary, it is not surprising that the parallel of daylight on day one with the light bearers on day four does not fit with the rest of the alleged literary pattern. The literary pattern proffered to us is one of habitats formed for the inhabitants to fill. Water for the fish, sky for the birds, land for land animals and humans. In order to fit this literary pattern, the habitat of the heavenly bodies should be the parallel with the sun, moon, and stars. That habitat, according to the text, is the firmament. God placed the sun, moon, and stars in the firmament, Genesis 1.17. Since the firmament was made on the second day, the second day should be the parallel to the creation of the heavenly bodies on the fourth day. Similarly, the habitat of the fish, according to the text, Genesis 1.22, is the seas, which did not exist until the third day. Add to this that the attempt to pair the fish of day five with the waters of day two is arbitrary. The waters mentioned on day two are focused as much on the waters or ocean even above the firmament as on the ocean below it. The text gives no indication that the waters below were any more significant than the waters above. In fact, at the end of day two, the waters below the firmament were only partly bounded, still unorganized, still chaotic. The author would not have thought of that ocean in that condition as being a suitable habitat for fish. It is not until the third day that there is a fitting habitat for fish, the seas. So the third day should be the parallel to the creation of fish on the fifth day. Conclusion. There is a two-tablet, six-day framework in Genesis 1, but it is limited to the parallelism of the two tablets and even they are chronological, not merely literary. In addition, there is an overarching seven-day framework in Genesis 1 to 2, 4, which clearly defines the days as immediately, chronologically, successive. The alleged parallels between days 1 and 4, uh, 1 and 4, 2 and and and. Th- no, mix up here. Two and five and three and six, the alleged parallels are either accidental or arbitrary. The question then arises if Genesis 1 is not merely literary, but is actually saying the universe was created in six normal successive days with a sun created after plants. Why are Christians not bound to accept that as a divine revelation of science? The basic answer is there is no divine intention to give us a revelation of science. 
Genesis 1 is a revelation of theological truths such as monotheism. Those truths testify to being divine revelations by the fact that they are contrary to ancient Near Eastern theology. The science in Genesis 1 is not a divine revelation. It testifies to being non-revelational by generally agreeing with ancient Near Eastern science and by the fact that it is falsified by empirical evidence. Compare Deuteronomy 18.22. God accommodated the science of the ancient Near East in order to smoothly communicate to his people theological revelations because the science is a divine accommodation, not a revelation. Christians are not bound at all to believe in its historicity. That's it.